You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. So, uh, this is uh, our Calabrian Abbot, and I wanted to start my talk on him today, uh, starting as one does with a quote from Kung Fu Zi otherwise known as Confucius, because how else am I going to start a lecture on a 12th century Calabrian abbot? In the Analects of Confucius, there is a passage, it's 13.3. Lu said, what will you consider the first thing to be done for good government? The master replied, Jingming, to rectify names. And so the first thing I want to do in talking about Joachim, is rectify names. When I first encountered the work of Joachim, it was in a seminar with Nicolas Largier on the uh, philosophy of history. And I then encountered him in the work of Karl Löwe. And both of them referred to uh, the abbot as Joachim da Fiore which is just a complete mangling of the language. It would be like calling him uh, you know, Leonard da Vinci. And it just doesn't make any sense. That, uh, so Joachim da Fiore makes no sense whatsoever. You will also see Joachim von Flora. That at least makes sense in that it's consistent. That is the German name, Joachim von Flora. You will see Joachim of Fiore. At least that makes a certain amount of sense. The one form that you will almost never see his name in is the one that he himself would have used, which is Giacchino da Fiore. I will attempt to refer to, to Giacchino as Giacchino da Fiore, uh, simply because I think it's the most accurate one. Could you, could you spell that and I'll type it so that people can actually see it written? Yes, uh, G, uh, I... Sorry, after a pause while I get it. G-I-O A-C-C-H-I-N-O New word, lowercase d-a New word, uppercase fiore F-I-O-R-E Giochino da fiore So today, who is talking about Giochino da fiore? Well, there seem to be four groups of people who are talking about him. Uh, the first are Wikipedians, who are talking about him briefly. Very, very small article on, on Joaquino. The second are a certain stream of politicos, who've decided that the way to criticize President Obama is to say that in the 2008 campaign, he made three separate references to Giacchino da Fiore. So they're talking about it wrongly, because he didn't, actually. <laughs> uh, there are scholars, people like uh, the late Marjorie Reeves and Bernard McGinn, who are talking about Giacchino da Fiore in Latin, um, because that's how they, they work. Uh, that doesn't do us a whole lot of good. And then there are esotericists, who are talking about Giacchino da Fiore generally badly. Uh, so there's not a whole lot of good, accessible research on this figure. 
despite the fact that he is thought to have exercised a profound influence on a lot of uh, later thinking. So I'm going to try to give a very, very brief sketch of, of his work and his ideas. Um, I'm not, by any stretch of the imagination, an expert on Joachimism or on Giacchino da Fiore, uh, but I have done as much research as I think is necessary to talk about him for, for half an hour, 45 minutes or so. He's born in 1135, dies in 1202, and lives primarily in Calabria, which is, if you're looking at the boot of Italy, it's down on the toe, and at the time that he is living there, it is part of the kingdom of Sicily. He does, for a time, live as a hermit on Mount Etna, which is interesting because there's another very famous hermit on Mount Etna, Empedocles. He becomes uh, ordained as a priest in 1168, and is by acclamation made the abbot of uh, the Benedictine Abbey of Corazzo. This later becomes a Cistercian Abbey in 1188, and he then is given the liberty to found a new abbey at San Giovanni di Fiore in 1192. So when we refer to him as uh, Giacchino da Fiore, that is a reference to to the Abbey uh, of San Giovanni. In 1200, he submits his writing to the Pope for approval. And this is an interesting point, because when Joachimism is condemned in 1215, uh, 13 years after his death, it is very, very clear from the Lateran Council's condemnation that it is not Joachim, it is not Giacchino, uh, Giacchino da Fiore, who is being condemned, but the ideas that have grown out of his work. There's even a point at which the council is at pains to say that there, you know, everything was was up and up on, in the abbey, that everything was being done properly, and that the abbey had submitted his works to uh, papal scrutiny. Nonetheless the condemnation seems to have carried with it a great deal of weight. And ever since then, it has been a commonplace, which is false, as commonplaces so often are, uh, that Giacchino da Fiore was condemned as a heretic. Uh, so far as we know, he was not. He is celebrated as a beatus, despite the fact that he was never formally beatified by the church. My uh, most of my uh, work with Giacchino da Fiore is in philosophy of history. And it is there that he's extended, uh, <coughs> uh, 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 that he's uh, exercised the most influence in secular philosophy. He's a very interesting philosophy of history, and this is most what most people know about him, this uh, three-age or three-status or three-tempo uh, system of uh, history. The source of history is, is similar in some sense to uh, the older prophets. It, it reads, and his work reads in many ways like the prophets of the Old Testament, in that there is a, a sense of impending doom, that there is a sense in which everything's about to, to just go completely in the bucket. And that there is a particular and peculiar revelation that seems to be unique to uh, Giacchino. 
and he refers to this primarily as intellectual vision or spiritual vision. These are terms that actually come from Augustine. So he is very much working within the canonical tradition. One of his most famous works concerns the accordance or the concordance between the Old and the New Testaments. That every figure in the Old Testament is a prefigurement of something in the New Testament. But this goes beyond the simple Augustinian exegesis that looked at this figure and said that you know, Melchizedek is a prefigurement of Christ and that uh, John the Baptist is you know, uh, a reference back to, um, oh, I'm, I'm spacing out here, uh, uh, Elias, um, that this is a reference back to Elias, and so on and so forth. It, it really posits a one-to-one -one sort of relationship between the historical events that are described in the Old Testament and the historical unfoldment of the New Testament. At the same time, Jacquino is not a prophet in the sense of giving a new testimony. Uh, he's not like Ezekiel, he's not like Daniel, he's not like John, who's gonna write a new sort of text that's gonna become part of the canonical Bible. But rather, he believes that he was given a new understanding of scripture. And so his work is less prophetic than it is hermeneutic, that it, is, it relies more on interpretation of text rather than creation or generation of new texts. His focus, at least originally, is primarily on the apocalyptic texts of the canonical Bible. He writes uh, the Expositio in Apocalypsin, which is a, a simple sort of uh, explanatory uh, diatribe on uh, the book of Revelation. But he also is drawing extensively on the figures of Daniel and Ezekiel. And one of the reasons that he emphasizes these texts in particular, and I've written uh, an article in uh, Dr. Jeffrey's journal about uh, the relationship between uh, Jacquino da Fiore's work and apocalypticism. The, one of the reasons that he takes up these questions is because they are, by their very nature, obscure. That these are not texts that have straightforward interpretations. If one wants to look at uh, the genealogies in the uh, Old Testament, to be sure, one can impart very deep and profound symbolic interpretations to these texts. On the other hand, one can read them quite simply, that they are simply lists of genealogy. If we look at some of the events in the Synoptic Gospels, we can, of course, give them certain kinds of interpretations. And Jacquinin would uh, insist that we do look beyond the literal interpretations. But they also seem to be stories that have a fairly straightforward import. But if we read Daniel, if we read Ezekiel, if we read the Revelation of St. John, these don't have easy or simple interpretations given on the surface that there is a certain amount of work that is required even to engage these texts in the first place. And so he's looking at these texts 
so that there might be a spiritual interpretation of these works that will allow him to, to go far beyond simply uh, the traditional surface interpretations of the day. Methodologically, he begins to see Revelation in particular as a prophecy of historical events. Now this is interesting, I think, to me because this has become something of a commonplace, that uh, the way that Revelation has been taken up particularly by uh, evangelical Christians is always that this is what is going to happen. This is a record of what is going to be coming in the end times. So that kind of interpretation seems relatively straightforward for us. That seems to be a very simple route to go. But at the time that uh, Jacquino is writing, this is, this is an unusual kind of interpretation. It was generally seen either as a purely spiritual allegory or as a record of events that had already happened, events that happened in the first couple of centuries of uh, Christianity. This is a radical sort of, of interpretation. And he also introduces the idea of the Evangelium in Eternum, the eternal gospel. And the eternal gospel appears to be the text that cannot be a text. It is something that can never be fully written down, that can never be encapsulated in human language. It's something that will always exceed any particular form of the gospel. It is the good news in its purest form. To try to seek out the Evangelium in Eternum, it's necessary to look through, as it were, the texts that we have on hand. And so he tries to look at the differing senses of the existing texts that we have to hand. Now, the traditional method is, is to look at the various senses, look at the literal sense. So just to, to draw an example, uh, Jesus meets the woman at the well. Literally, he's talking to some woman who's going to get water at a well. There is the allegorical or doctrinal interpretation in which she becomes a symbol for those of us seeking the living water. There is the moral or tropological dimension where he inquires to her about her own actions, about her own activities. And finally, there is the anagogic or the heavenly interpretation, where the whole of the truth of the story is being revealed. So there is the literal, allegorical, moral, and anagogic interpretations. If we're looking at something that is quite clearly allegorical, we can look at, he says, the historical, moral, tropological, distinguishes between those two, contemplative, and anagogic senses, and that there does seem to be uh, an increasing sense of the freedom that we have to interpret these texts, that there is an increasing sort of fluidity in interpretation as we move from the literal or historical to the uh, anagogic or uh, heavenly interpretation. 
one of the ways to do this more complete kind of interpretation is to look for concordia, concords between the two testaments. Look for the structural similarities between the Old and the New Testaments. And assign meanings to historical events. But where this goes beyond any previous kinds of interpretations is that if there is a symbol that plays out in a particular way in the Old Testament, and we see that symbol play out a second way in the New Testament, doesn't it stand to reason that there will be a continuation of that cycle into our time? Isn't there a third step? And this is, at its root, what defines Jacquino's philosophy of history most precisely, this moving toward the third stage. We've got the Old Testament, that stuff that happened before. There's the New Testament, which is the record of the sayings of Christ and the actions of Christ and the historical circumstances regarding his ministry. But then where does that leave us? Where do we act on the basis of those texts? And our actions and the historical events of our age then begin to define the third age. And it is this image of the third age, of the third stage, that is most important for Joachimism. That what we see is the emergence of a, a sense of history in which what has come before is going to play out again in our age and lead ultimately to the consummation that we see in the apocalypse. Obviously, this is something that does not lend itself to easy explanation in language. And so one of the ways in which Jacquino tries to express this is in the figure, the figures. There's a text that is, was considered for some years to be a spurious text that is called the Liber Figurarum. And uh, Marjorie Reeves argues strenuously, I didn't bring my text with me. Mar Marjorie Reeves argued strenuously, you want me to go, yeah, if you go around this, uh, that it, this is a legitimate text of, of Jacquino da Fiore's. It is almost exclusively pictures. And some of these pictures range from the explanatory to the frankly insane. Uh, we have circles, we've got trees, we've got tree circles, and we've got eagles, and then we have tree eagles, and seven-headed dragons, and, and it just gets more and more bizarre as we go through. One of the things that I'm going to do, and we can actually just real quickly step through some of these. This is one of the simplest of the Trinitarian circles. Can you go to the next one? Uh, this is a somewhat more elaborate description of the movement of, of history in the first, second, and third ages. Um, and the sort of interlocking series of events that take place within each one. So you see that this, this is actually from the Libre Concordiae, the, the Book of Concords or the Book of Analogies. And it says the 
primus status, secundum status, tertius status, so the first status, the second state, the third state. Next one. This is actually his attempt to draw out Ezekiel's vision of wheels within wheels. This bizarre sort of Merkaba uh, vision of Ezekiel. Here he's trying to, to work out exactly what that means. And so we see these Borromean rings uh, where we've got interconnected loops over and over again. There's our seven-headed dragon. We're going to talk more about some of these images in a little bit. And this one is, of course, one of the more straightforward, strangely enough, because it's drawn explicitly uh, from the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. Okay? And then the last one. This is one of the most elaborate and one of the most comprehensive of the sets of Trinitarian circles. And we'll actually be looking at, at exactly what is being sort of identified here. I've got to uh, admit that there's much of this that I simply can't read, and I've, I've looked at every scan I can, can find, uh, and there's simply parts of this that where I can't make out the Latin. Um, much of it is, is fairly clear if you're familiar with, with the language and with its uh, theology. So why don't we leave that one up for right now, because I think that that most clearly uh, sort of explains what it is that's going on in uh, the Trinitarian uh, structures. History for Jacquino is separated into three tempora, three uh, ages, three <coughs> times, properly called uh, stati, states. They are interlocking, progressive, and complex figures. how it is that I started to travel without a giant stack of books. Um, I just wanted to draw a, a quote here from, uh, this is uh, Marjorie Reeves, uh, called the Figure of Joachim of Fiore. Um, for whatever reason, this text has become incredibly rare, incredibly scarce, I don't know why. I believe it's one of the Warburg um, uh, editions, and they, of course, put wonderful things out and then abandoned them. Um, okay. He says, nothing demonstrates more aptly the need for figures in studying Joachim's system than the fact that the modern student is driven to the construction of a diagram before he can work out the interrelations of these several divisions. And she gives a description of the combination of the patterns of twos, threes, and sevens within uh, the various stati. And each status, each time, has a fructification, or excuse me, a germination, a sort of growth, and a fructification, a flowering. And historically, Giacchino identifies them as follows. The first status consists of 63 generations, from, and the germination is from Adam to Jacob. The fructification is Jacob to Asias. 
The germination of the second status is Osius to Christ. Okay, so we're in the second status here. Osius to Christ, there's the germination. And the fructification is Christ to Benedict. The germination is Benedict to somebody that's still to come, at least at the time that he was writing. And from this unnamed person to the consummation of the age, consummatio secui. So the fact that there are these incredibly complex systems of generations and identities and names and ages calls out in a real way to draw a picture. How else are you going to try to figure out what it is that he's talking about? Unfortunately, we're looking at his way of sort of thinking through these things. And so the way he draws them may not necessarily be intuitively obvious of what he's trying to uh, describe. We can say quite simply that the three stati, the state of father, <coughs> the state of the son, and the state of the Holy Spirit reflect not a new third age in which there will be a new testament, a third testament, but rather that there is simply the old and the new testament. That's why we get this vesica in the middle that separates the one from the other. So we've already got three, we've got two, we've got four, and so you start to see that the, the arithmosophy starts to add up very, very quickly. The first age, or first status, is essentially from Adam to Christ. And this is the age of the father, the age of the married. So the, the spiritual state for human beings in this age is the state of marriage. But we know that the second age, the age of the son, is going to be typified not by the institution of marriage, but by the institution of the clergy. That the clerics seem to be the sort of uh, paradigmatic uh, institutions in the second age. We can call this from Josiah, oh yes, uh, to 1260. This is the, the prediction that he makes. And this, he says, bears fruit in Christ. So Christ isn't the beginning of the second age. He is the, the, the coming together. He is the fructification of the age. And finally, the third age will be an age of the spirit that will be typified neither by the priesthood as the second age or the institution of marriage in the first age, but by monasticism, by the monastic life. And this will begin in earnest with Benedict. So the Benedictine monasticism is what is ultimately going to typify this. It bears its fruit in the last times. It bears its fruit in the last days. And it lasts, ultimately, to the end of the world. As it were, sort of beyond the end of the last circle. It's typified by monasticism, 
But that monasticism does not include a new revelation. It doesn't include a third testament. It is a working through of the existing testimony. If we look at the figures themselves, I've tried to use this one in particular in order to uh, sort of clarify what he's talking about here. But you can see how completely packed this is with, uh, with numerical and alphabetical symbolism. So we've got the alpha ad omicum. And we'll occasionally see a three part where we have alpha omicron, omega, uh, which I think is very, very interesting from, uh, from a Gnostic viewpoint, from a, a, a Kabbalistic viewpoint. There is the structure of, as I said, the father, the son, and the spirit. But it's not quite that simple. Because down here he says, pater, spiritus sanctus, filius spiritus sanctus. And some of us may look at that and say this, this tetragrammaton here is the Hebrew tetragrammaton. And one of the ways that he tried to think the Hebrew Tetragrammaton is to think of it as three separate words. yod He, He Vav, Vav He. So rather than just splitting it down the middle, yod He, that's the, what's the right, ah, here it is. Vetos um, Testimonium, the Old Testament, and the Novum Testimonium, the New Testament and Vav He, but there is also this sort of middle area. So we start to see that there's an incredible amount of overlap between these various structures. It isn't straightforward. And I think that a lot of times people, when they first encounter uh, Jacquino's work, they want it to be very, very straightforward. Ah, the first age is from Adam to Christ, and then you know it ends with Christ, and so now there's something new. And so the new, the second age is going to start with the sun and it's going to go up to, you know, something just in the future. And then there's going to be this glorious third age and that's going to last for the end of the world. But the ages actually overlap each other. And that's why we see these rings as interlocked. One of the reasons that I like this image of the rings so much is I think about the mathematical structure of the Borromean rings. And the Borromean rings, if you remove any... Uh, one of those rings, the other two are unlinked. The other two are, are independent of each other. That the linkage of the three comes from not the linkage of all three somehow integrally, but in the linkage of pairs. That each of the pairs are linked. And I think that, that Joachim is very, very uh, sensitive to this, that Giacchino is very, very sensitive to this in drawing these structures of these rings. A note real quickly about the colors. Here we see the color of the green for the age of the father, the blue for the age of the son, the red for the age of the spirit. It varies wildly. He does not seem to have any consistent structure for the colors. And I've, I read a paper a couple of years ago where somebody was looking at this and trying to ascribe to Giacchino all kinds of interesting sort of color symbolism which works great if you're only looking at this one, but you look at any of the other Trinitarian circles and the colors are all different. Uh, so, so just the 
which whichever color pencil he picks up first? I, it, it seems to be that simple, yes. I, the idea of Giacchino with colored pencils is sort of, you know, stuck with me now forever. But um, <laughs> thank you very much for that. Um, so we've got a, a series of interlocking states. And that's one of the things that I find uh, most challenging in trying to figure out what it is that, that Giacchino's really talking about, because these don't seem to be stable. These don't seem to be consistent, one text from another. There seems to be a certain degree of variation, a little bit of, uh, of give and take. Um, there is actually, uh, so if you would go back to the very first, yeah. Um, obviously, this is, it is very, very similar to this structure that we see in the Expositione Apocalypsum, which is a much earlier work. This is from the Paris manuscript. Um, and, but we see the same kind of structure. So we see the uh, primary status, the secondary status, the third uh, tertiary status. Um, with pater, filius, spiritus sanctus, but again, pater, spiritus sanctus, filius, spiritus sanctus, uh, and the, the four-part structure here. So he seems to have at least retained this. I have to admit there is something that puzzles me, and if one of you who is perhaps uh, more schooled in Latin than I am, can figure out what is it that he identifies in this centerpiece here? And this is always, he, he seems to be very intent on making sure that this is properly labeled, properly marked. But I've not been able to figure out what it is. It seems to be, uh, I mean, and it would make a certain amount of sense that this is the intertestimonial period. Uh, but I have to admit that I am at a loss. And unfortunately, uh, uh, Dr. Reeves and, and Dr. Uh, Dr. McGinn don't seem to be a great deal of help on this. Uh, but that, that may entirely be my failure. That may be that I've uh, not found the, the appropriate reference. So if anyone can sort of figure, figure this one out, I'd be, I'd be grateful. Um, the, if you would skip forward, uh, yeah, that's the one I want. This, I think, uh, which is from the Libre Concordiae, mm -hmm. right, yeah, okay. This is the one from the Libre Concordiae. I think what we're most uh, meant to take away from this is that individual figures within the, uh, the particular status that are, are sort of mirroring the movement of the status itself that uh, we're, we're, again, talking wheels within wheels. We're looking at macrocosms and microcosms that we're seeing played out in particular figures, many of the same things that we're going to see played out in a grand scale. You know what that immediately makes me think of is the, uh, have you ever seen frequency diagrams where they talk about octaves? So you'll have the frequency go across the horizontal, but then you'll have the frequency doubles, and it will mm -hmm, go across mm -hmm. the horizontal. They, they match up at, at, at specific points, yeah. And I think that, I mean, if Jacquino were to have the sort of language of frequency, that this is something that I think would be very, very consonant with the kind of work here. That we are talking about sort of an increase in octave, where 
where it's, you know, uh, Adam isn't uh, Josiah. No, that's not what he's saying. You know, Christ isn't Benedict. No, that's not what he's saying. It, it's not a matter of, of equation so much as it is one of concordance, that they, they connect with each other and they refer back and forth to each other. And we can gain a deeper understanding of the text by looking at the various concords. But we oughtn't to simply say that things are happening on a simple one-by-one -one basis. So the, the image of frequency, I think, is one that, that is very much in keeping with, with what he's doing here. Um, let's look now at the, at the dragon. And this beautiful, beautiful drawing of the Dracos Magnus et Rufus, the great and red dragon from uh, Apocalypse 12, with seven heads and ten horns. And the interpretation that these represent individual uh, kings, individual powers, comes straight from the text itself. But the identification of one of the heads with some particular ruler has varied wildly. Again, some have seen this as, as something that has occurred entirely in the past. Some have seen this as something that is going to come in the future. Giacchino appears to have split the difference, as it were. That he looks at the first four heads, and the first four are identified with specific rulers who have persecuted the church. Interestingly, he says that the fifth one is one that is going to be from within the church itself. And I have to see if I've, I don't think I, uh, I think I made the mistake of not marking off my, oh no, there it is. Uh, so of uh, the fifth head, he writes, uh, Quintus is qui primus in partibus occiduus cepit fatigare ecclesia. So to put on the, the clothes of the, to bear the, the markings of the church. Um, later on, ob quam causum motis schismata. Okay, I guess we know what that is all about. Uh, et tribulationes orta sunt ex eo tempore in ecclesia dei. So this is somebody who's going to cause uh, schism from within the church, that this is not going to be a power outside of the church that is going to, to persecute it, but something that's going to come from within. And the last two, six and seven, are still yet to come. There is a strong prophetic dimension in the ordinary sense of the word as uh, foreseeing what's going to come. Father Chad? So he says that the third age will not be marked by a new testament or a new revelation. That's correct. And yet here he is making revelatory because for him, this is, this is an interpretation of the New Testament, not a Third Testament. So he's not Joseph Smith, for example, right? So, I mean, he's not saying that he's going to have a New Testament of Jesus Christ. But instead, this is purely interpretive. And that's, that's where I think he would make the difference. Uh, for specification on the uh, fifth head, mm -hmm. um, the one coming from within the church, um, that is someone that at the time of his writing he was expecting to appear? Or? It's unclear. Okay. He's, um, and, and later, uh, Joachimists, as they're called, uh, were split yeah. on this. 
Uh, some identified it with one of the innocents. I can't remember which one. Uh, that this was, that the fifth head was actually Pope Innocent. One of the less innocent of the innocents? Uh, I think clearly one of the less innocents of the innocents. Um, or it could have been one of the less pious of the piouses, or, uh, you know, less honorable of the Honoriae, or whatever. Um, the less, less frank of the Francis's? Oh, there's only one Francis? There's only one Francis, and so far he seems to be quite frank. Um, so, um, yeah, it's unclear whether that's, whether he's writing about somebody who is within the church at the time, obviously that's a good way to become a crispy critter, um, or he's looking for somebody that's coming down the road. Uh, that's unclear, that's unclear. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been trying to figure that out from my reading as well. Um, yeah. I mean, my immediate suggestion is possibly Arius, but I have no foundation. Um, the timing would be off. Timing is off there, timing is yeah. Off, yeah. And, um, uh, and, and yeah, yeah, and it's it's and there the, the that's anachronistic. Yeah. Uh, it, it does seem to be. I, I've seen many suggestions that he is referring to a specific pope. Okay. Um, and it would therefore make sense that he would be uh, somewhat circumspect in in identifying because as as the, is the case with so many heretics, he sees himself as a good son of the church. He doesn't see himself as doing anything heretical. You know, in his mind... Just like Arius. I'm sorry, just, just like, like Arius. Like Galileo. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean... Nestorius. You know, Nestorius. I mean, Origen. You know, I mean, they all, you know, sort of see themselves as representing the true tradition. Uh, so I, I don't think he wants to strike out at the church. He's not a revolutionary in that sense. And he doesn't seem to suggest that they'll be... That monasticism is going to replace the priesthood. You know, that's not, not what's going on here. He's not anti-clerical in that sense. He is a priest himself, after all. Right. Well, let's not, not kid ourselves. Um, but he does see uh, something coming down the pipe that is going to be significantly different. My history's crap, so how far are we from Luther? It's another About couple hundred years at least. Years. Yeah, another, another 200, 200, 300 years. I'm just... The, I mean, the Reformation was a response to what was happening in the church, right? Yeah. So maybe he's talking about what was happening in the church at the time. It, it may very well be. I don't. I, I mean, and certainly the Reformation is not something that happened, you know, on this day. Kapuya. Um, it's not far from the Great Schism. Uh, it's a couple. It's a, what about a hundred years after the Great Schism? Two hundred. Two hundred years. No. No. He's born in eleven thirty-five. Oh, sorry. So he's he's born just 80 years after the Great Schism. Um, he doesn't seem to that doesn't seem to be you know, rich in his mind. Um, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that before because I don't know that he mentions it. I mean, he doesn't think of the the Eastern Church as somehow a threat uh, to the Western Church at this point. Um, and it is what he meant. He'd be very circumspect about talking. Yeah, and I think that maybe within the first couple of hundred years of the Great Schism, there was certainly hope for reconciliation. Uh, so maybe he didn't want to, uh, you know, say anything that would be that politically dangerous in an age when when reconciliation was still a possibility. So, again, you know, in many cases, we're left without clear uh, signposts here. Um, so. The 
sixth and seventh heads, and finally the tail representing Gog, uh, are still yet to come. So he does have a prophetic uh, plan, a prophetic work that he is undertaking here. There are other images. I didn't include them. Uh, after we break, if you want to take a look at this wonderful uh, text from, from Marjorie Reeves called the Figure, um, it has the images of the ten-string psaltery. It's another one. So a musical instrument with ten strings that he uh, draws on. That there are, as I said, the trees, the tree circles, the tree eagles. There are a couple of eagles that become very, very important because the Jonite aspect is something that comes to the fore in his work. And I do want to talk about that uh, in a little bit as well. The third status is obviously the one that is going to be of the most interest to us. That the third age is the one in which we're really talking about something new emerging, uh, that we are looking forward to something that is a possibility. It is, as we said, monastic. That, of course, raises the question of what happens to the institutional church in this age. Uh, does it go away? Does it transform? Is it overthrown? But there does seem to be a move from flesh to spirit. And this is very much in keeping with the kind of historical analysis that's going to be done by people like Hegel, that sees history as a constant unfolding of spirit coming to knowledge of itself, coming to its own understanding. But this transformation, this move, comes only with severe ordeals and trials. And this is very much in keeping with uh, more contemporary contemporary to us, uh, apocalypticism that sees the apocalypse primarily in terms of a final battle, a final struggle, with a peace that precedes it. There is a real distinction from previous forms of theology of history, and I'm thinking primarily of Augustine here, in that there doesn't seem to be any attempt to recover the past Jules, can I have one of the cups? I managed to bring myself up an entire uh, pitcher of water and not a cup. And ordinarily, of course, I would just drink straight from the pitcher, but seeing as we're on video, I'm going to avoid that. At least a stool. I need a golden tube. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. So. Uh, is different from other forms of theology of history in that it is not an attempt to recover or understand the past so much as it is completely forward-looking. Uh, it is monastic, but he's, not, he's neither trying to found a new monastic order or even to identify his own order as the sort of start of the new monasticism of the Third Age but rather it is something new that cannot be fully envisaged. It's something that cannot be fully uh, sort of pictured even now, sitting as we are in the 12th century, uh, looking forward to the development of uh, this new monasticism. But there does seem to be a profound meliorism. Meliorism is the idea that it is individual human beings that somehow contribute 
to the movement of history and the movement of theology that we see outlined in the Bible. I talk about this in my classes sometimes in the context of uh, Zoroastrianism, uh, talking about Manichaeanism, for example, in terms of St. Augustine, that the ordinary way of thinking about the final consummation of, of history in Christianity is to say, we know how this is going to end. We know how this is going to play out. We know who's going to win. The white hats are going to win every single time. And there's no way that it could be otherwise. That St. Michael and his angels are going to be victorious over the beast, and the New Jerusalem is going to come down, and there will be no more tears, and so on and so forth. There's no way that that cannot happen. And so this is a good incentive to be on the side of the angels, as it were, because you know what side of the bread your butter's on. On the other hand, if the struggle, if the conclusion of the struggle is up in the air a little more, uh, a little more if there is a possibility that the beast could be victorious, in the first place, that's sort of terrifying. The idea that God could lose this battle. Now, if we think of God as the creator of all things, the devil and the beast, these are necessarily creatures. These are things that by their very nature are going to be inferior to the creator from which they spring, so they could never be victorious. But if we're talking about forces that are more closely matched, there is the possibility that they could, they could win. And if that's the case, then we have, I think, an even better reason to be on the side of the angels. Because our actions actually contribute to God's victory. That God, in some sense, needs us to be victorious. We've got to fight on his side. And it seems that Giacchino was clearly more in line with a kind of meliorism where Human activity plays a decisive role in the unfolding of historical and spiritual and cosmic events. That the, the defeat of the dragon, the defeat of the beast, comes because human beings take certain actions. And this is very, very important if we're going to see in history uh, playing out of cosmic and spiritual themes. Because Ultimately, history is shaped by the actions of human beings. These are individuals. It's not as if there are, you know, there's, there's those of us sort of sitting down here doing our thing, and then there are these huge impersonal figures that somehow are running on autopilot. That, and I think that I'm, I'm influenced by Hegel in thinking this, that history only happens in and through individual action. At the same time, the providential movement of history is such that they conform to a certain kind of pattern. That there is a real tension between uh, a sort of free action on the part of individuals and the necessary progression of the age. Again, I like to think of this, and I'm talking about uh, things like fate, that to say that we have a fate 
is not to say that everything we do is predetermined. And the simplest way to, to do this, to think about this, is, is to imagine that next year we get together at Conclave and His Eminence gets up in front of, of everyone assembled and says, well, everybody, I have to tell you that Mar Thomas is dead. And when the applause dies down, naturally, one would ask how this happened. What brought this about? How could this possibly be the state of affairs? And there's two different answers that you could give to why is it that Mar Thomas is, is lying in a grave rather than talking about Giacchino da Fiore this year. One answer is, uh, you know, he got run over by a truck or, you know, he had a, a tumor the size of an egg in his head. Uh, or, you know, Juliana finally got tired and set the bed on fire, or, you know, whatever it is that's, uh, you know, is the immediate sort of efficient cause of my demise. But another answer is that Mar Thomas, and this is not to be circulated, of course, is human. And human beings die. And how we get to that death, how we get to that fate, is not predetermined. It's not as if there's somehow uh, a necessary playing out of events that leads us to that point, but we will reach that point inevitably. No matter what choices I make, they all ultimately lead to that same place. And so I think <coughs> you can see that same sort of tension in looking at the movement of history, and that history does have a providential nature to it. It unfolds according to certain kinds of patterns, and yet those patterns are driven by the actions of individual human beings. That it, it isn't that we are simply powerless in the face of history, that we take a real part in shaping history. Lastly, there is the figure of what he calls the spiritual pope. That there is a figure that will emerge in history that is going to assume the pontificate, but not in the manner in which we've come to expect in the second age. Not in the manner in which we've come to expect in the age that's typified by the priesthood, but rather a spiritual pope that will embody or personify the uh, third age. And when I was sort of giving that initial description, where it goes from Benedict to somebody, that somebody there is the figure of the spiritual pope. And so the very end of the Third Age goes from the emergence of the spiritual pope to the consummation of the age. So why is any of this important for us? Now, at this point, I've, I haven't said anything radical. I haven't said anything that you can't find in, in Dr. McGinn or, or Dr. Reeves' books. I haven't said anything particularly radical or interesting. But I want to, because I want to make a claim that's going to get me into all kinds of trouble. That Giacchino da Fiore is a great, big, fat Gnostic. Marjorie Reeves is currently crawling out of her tomb to come throttle me right now for saying this. Giacchino da Fiore 
has strong Gnostic tendencies. And the Gnosticism, I think we can look to certain elements and see real Gnostic echoes in what he's doing. First of all, the idea that we are on a path that leads from an age of the world to an age of the spirit. That the movement is beyond the world, that the focus is beyond the, the world in which he finds himself. And this played out in his own life. And there are comments from his, uh, his secretary who says that when he began his work, he was stunned to see a person of such notoriety, a person who was famous, it was a bit of an ecclesiastical celebrity, sitting in rags, that he didn't have the kind of regard for the world that was very much a part of the church at this time. That he's looking beyond the institutional structures of the world that define the church at this time to something that we can identify simply as, as more spiritual. The emphasis on personal, mystical experience as a way to guide interpretation of canonical texts is something that he shares with the classical Gnostics. That it's not that we simply abandon these texts, that we say, oh, well, those belong to the exoteric church, and we're somehow better than that. But rather, our insight coming from discipline, coming from spiritual practice, enables us to provide an interpretation of these texts that plums their depths, that goes beyond simply the surface meaning. Not even just to allegorical or moral interpretations. Um, certainly, you know, traditional theology has done that perfectly well. But to something much more profound, much deeper, and a kind of anagogic or heavenly interpretation. There is this strong sense that he is not of this world, that he feels alienated in this world, and that the attempt then is to return to a state that is transcendent. And the exclusion that he feels, I think, mirrors some of the exclusion that we talk about in the Joannine community. Think, again, we're thinking of, of Raymond Brown. Uh, that, that kind of exclusion, that kind of separating out, I think can be seen on a number of levels in Giacchino's work. First of all, the, uh, very simply, the uh, sort of exclusion of, or the, the decentering of uh, the monastic life in favor of, of priesthood. And this is something that, you know, and, and we can see this even today, unfortunately, within uh, the Roman Catholic Church, that the emphasis is very much on the priestly hierarchy. Oh, yeah, and then there are those monks and nuns that are somewhere out there, and they're doing their thing, too. That they're certainly, they're relegated to a, a, a sort of extraneous position. And I think that this is something that, uh, that Giacchino feels very, very... Uh, acutely. Uh, but lastly, this sense that uh, he wants to escape this world, that he's looking to an age that is going to be beyond anything that we experience today.